Good to see you. If you have a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 10. We've got an entire chapter um, to get through today. So I confess there'll be lots of reading um, because the, the narrative's pretty simple, but I don't want to avoid it. So we're going to go through that. Acts chapter 10. I don't know um, if, well, I do know. Change is difficult for everybody, right? <laughs> Somebody's cheering that. Um, most people resist change, and the most difficult change of all is the one we resist most of all, and that is heart change. There are superficial things that come and go, I suppose, and those are difficult enough, but when, when something's wrong inside, there's some perspective that we either don't understand or one we do and we think we're right about, then, then it gets much more difficult. The difficulty of heart change is nothing new. It's been going on since the very beginning of the church. And here we are in Acts. The church has begun. The church is six years old-ish. And change is needed in the church already. And the change that we're going to see uh, this morning um, is ultimately the reason why you and I are sitting in a church in Gilbert, Arizona, 2017, believe it or not. Um, so I'm going to try to make that point. Before I do, I want to try to get a contextual running start by backing up, if you would allow me, to the last part of chapter 9 that Tyler dealt with last week. In, in chapter 9, at least that section, there's two one-off stories about Peter's ministry, and Tyler took it and, and pointed it towards the, the power of God capable in our life. He cares so deeply for us that there's a disconnect in our desire to ask him for these amazing, crazy things and his ability and his love for us. And so we were kind of encouraged uh, last week to just really pray to the size of our God. What, what, he, what could he do? And that clearly is a, a so what of those stories, but I'm going to use them to kind of get ready or kind of warm us up to the work that God is doing, the change that God is bringing in this one man's life, Peter and hence the rest of the church. Before uh, we do, let me uh, remind you a little bit, or at least maybe shape in your mind the personality of Peter. So um, Peter is a, uh, he's an intense man. Peter is a, uh, I don't know, impulsive would be fair to say. He is the classic act first, speak, you know, think later kind of a guy. Uh, that, that's who he is. Now, that's important to know that that's where things started with Peter, but God is shaping Peter over time. He's learning lessons. In fact, one of the significant spiritual moments where Peter learns a big lesson in his life, his spiritual life, is when Jesus suggests his life. Was that me or am I uh, passing out? I don't know. Um, um, at, towards the end of Jesus, just before he's going to the cross, he says, you guys are all going to leave me. You're going to deny me and you're going to walk off. And it was Peter at that moment who, who I believe sincere and honest said, not me, not, not ever me, I'll die for you. And that's chapter 26. At the end of chapter 26, he denies him three times. Remember that? So the lessons that Peter learns right out of the gate were about this thing called weakness that resides in the heart of every man. And the issue of pride and self-sufficiency, like I, I'm better than that. I can do more than that. They might do that, but not me. And that whole lesson that Peter had to learn on humility happened right in the beginning. Well, God is not finished growing Peter. And so thus begins in chapter 11, another lesson. And the lesson that Peter needed to learn was he had a problem with the Gentiles. 
like every self-respecting Jewish person would and did at that time. And the attitude goes very, uh, way back, way back to the very beginning of the Hebrew people because they considered the Gentiles to be, and this is no exaggeration, scum. Um, goyim is the, and I asked, I asked Neil about this Hebrew word. It just means basically those people. And you have to say it looking down your nose with kind of a goyim. That's how a good Hebrew felt about us about everyone around them that wasn't them. That's how they felt. In fact, you want a great narrative, just look at the story of Jonah and Nineveh. God says to Jonah, go to those goyim and tell them to stop and tell them that I'll rescue them if they stop. And Jonah said, not them. And when God did rescue them, he goes, I knew it. I knew you'd be good to people like that. So, because in, in every self-respecting Hebrew's mind, those people, they're beneath us. They don't deserve it, okay? Now, Peter, as well as the entire church, the early church, needed to grow. And they needed to grow in this issue of a separatism, of feeling better than other people. Because what Jesus said to the disciples when he left was, Here, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world, Okay? That's, that's where you're going to tell the story. But the church had a problem. And I'm not exaggerating when I use these words. I'm being very precise. It was a bigoted church. It was racist, if I can say it. It hated the Gentiles. Goyim. Hey, that sounded great. And so, in chapter 9, I think the softening begins for Peter. That's why I want to get a running start through these stories. They're, they're pretty short, and we don't have to read them, but this first story was about a paralytic man named Aeneas who lived in Lydda, who was paralyzed for eight years. Remember, Peter shows up and says, rise, pick up your mat, and walk. Story one. Story two was regarding this woman named Tabitha who got sick and died. The people in, in this place where she was, in this kind of western town called Joppa, heard about what Peter accomplished in Lydda, calls for Peter to come. He raises this woman to life. Two great big stories, Okay. So what do these seemingly random stories of Peter's ministry have to do with loving and accepting people that exclude him? Let me point out some uniquenesses to those stories that kind of just don't register with us but are part of a softening in a Hebrew mindset towards outsiders. First of all, is that these miracles, although they happened to Jewish people, they happened in Gentile places. Both, both Joppa and Lydda were generally Gentiles. So clearly Peter had to wrestle with that God's moving in pagan places. He, he's maybe moving in Jews, but it's happening outside of Jerusalem, so I gotta get my head around that. Second thing I think it's interesting about these one-off stories is that although Tabitha is known here, described here as a believer, she most likely wasn't a Jew. Because Jews would bury their dead within the first day, and she wasn't. Days had taken place before Peter had gotten there. So most writers would suggest that she was, she was probably a Gentile. So God's raising the Gentiles. God's favor is on those people. The third thing I think is interesting, that after that healing takes place, the text tells us that Peter stayed in that place with a man named Simon who was a tanner. Tanners by profession handled dead bodies for a living. No self-respecting Jew would ever be with someone who was so unclean as to touch a dead body. 
And yet Peter did. Says he fellowshiped with him. So clearly there's some things happening that are outside of the context of the normal Hebrew mind as it relates to those types of people. Make sense? Things are starting to happen for him. So I want to use that as we kind of launch into chapter 10. Something's going on in Peter's life. It's expanding his mind. It's trying to get, God's trying to get his mind to a perspective to see it how he sees it. Clearly. In fact, what I think is happening for Peter is his theology has to go through a, a revolution. He has to think differently about God and his intentions in, in the world. Let's do this. Let's just read it in sections. I'll point out a couple of maybe interesting points, and then we'll wrap this all up with some what I believe God um, given so what, okay? Here's verse one through verse eight, the beginning of the story. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he startled, stared at him and, with terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angels who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who had attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius is an interesting man. He's a, he's a uh, centurion, which meant he kind of commanded Roman forces of 100 plus, something like that. But how he's described in this section is very unusual. It says he's a God-fearing man, which implies that he believed in or trusted in or followed in Israel's God, the one God. He, he wasn't converted to Judaism. He wasn't circumcised. But somehow this understanding, as much as he could understand, about the one God, he, belie he believed in, okay? It says that he was a generous man. He was a devout man. He was a, my term, not the Texas term, but a God seeker because he prayed continually. And I would suggest to you that he was a good husband and a good father because it says his household followed as well and prayed as well. So something about his influence and his pursuit of God meant he was unusual for, for a centurion, clearly. Now let's pick up the story in, in verses nine through 16. Now Peter's story intersects with, with Cornelius. The next day as they were on their journey, now that's the cohort that he sent down to find Peter, and approaching the city, Peter then went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw heavens open and something like great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Joppa was apparently about a day's journey south to Caesarea, um, where the servants were going there to seek Peter. And while they were doing that, Peter had his own little moment with God, another vision. He's on the roof of Simon the Tanner, and he's praying. He falls into a trance, and he dreams, not once, not twice, but three times, this same dream of this sheet coming down from heaven with all these creatures in it, some clean, according to the Hebrew law, and some unclean, just a mess of stuff. 
And Peter's response to the command by this, this vision to rise, kill, and eat was no way. I've never done that. I never will. And it's not like he's being stubborn or obstinate or, or somehow even rebellious. I think what you have here is Peter really um, feeling the test of his faithfulness. If I've done all this work for the right reasons in my mind, I'm never going to quit on God. I, if this is how a man is kind of perceived as clean, then I'm never going to cross those lines. I'm going to be faithful to these dietary laws of all of my, my heritage. And when he says that, there's this other word that comes and says, hey, what I, what I call clean, don't you call unclean? And it happens three times. If it would happen once, you could blame it on low blood sugar, right? Falling into trance, I'm hungry, it happens to me every Sunday afternoon. It happened three times, undeniable. Undeniable, God was saying something to Peter, okay? He believed that he was speaking to him. And let's pick up the story in verse 17. We'll read all the way to verse 33, long section. Here's how it continues. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one whom you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I sent for you, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in a bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter is in this moment of seeing these three visions and the knock at the door comes. He's interrupted. Whatever he's trying to conclude, whatever he's perplexed about, however he's trying to sort out this vision, he's interrupted. And these servants from Cornelius say, hey, listen, we're here because our, our master, right, or our friend has invited you to his house. And Peter does something totally unusual for a Hebrew. He invites these Gentiles into his home. Another kind of sense of this change happening in Peter's response to those people. So he invites them in. And the next day he goes with those 
people, and he didn't go alone. In fact, according to chapter 11, verse 12, it says that Peter took six others, which is interesting because that's the number that you would have to make some kind of sense of legal witness of an event. That number was the perfect number for that. So my assumption is that Peter had kind of an idea that God's about to do something and we better prove it, so we'll take witnesses. So he takes this group of people and, and watch what he does when he gets there. He starts to preach. This is an amazing sermon by Peter. We're gonna pick it up in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand. This is the first thing out of his mouth. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John had proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem, he put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to, to appear not only to the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's interesting that Cornelius um, reminds me of Matthew when, God, when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector to follow him. Matt, the first thing Matthew does is have a party. And the only people Matthew knows is notoriously evil people. It's, it's the kind of party no good Christian would attend. But Jesus is there. Cornelius, as soon as he gets this vision, he invites family and friends. I can just imagine this house filled with people, everybody that Cornelius loves. And Cornelius is assuming that, that Peter's gonna tell him about this God that he fears. And so he invites everyone to hear this story. And what Peter does is share the simplicity of the good news. I mean, in other places, you see Peter arguing from a Jewish lens. And there are other things that are applied to that Jewish perspective. But here you have it boiled down to its essence. What makes a sinner separated from his creator? What makes him right with God? And it tells us right here in a very simple explanation. He talks about the life of Jesus and how he lived. It talks about the sacrificial death of Jesus in verse 39 and the wonderful resurrection of Jesus in, in verse 40. And he says, I saw it. Me and a whole bunch of other people saw the risen Lord. It's true. You can, you can believe in it. And he declared the wonderful truth that anyone, not just Jewish people, but anyone who would trust in Jesus could be saved and know eternal life. Right? That's what he tells them. Now watch what unbelievable thing happens next. Verse 44. When Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on those people. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. I can just picture this story this crowd of loved ones and friends of Cornelius 
And this stranger, Peter, starts talking about Jesus and how he had come and lived this righteous life that no man could live and how he willingly put himself on a cross in harm's way to suffer the wrath of God's fury against your sin. And he didn't stay there. He rose again to give life to all who would believe. And that's the testimony, right? He is the king, the judge of the living and the dead. Anyone who believes in him will be saved. That simple truth was hanging in the air when the Holy Spirit came on him, just like Acts 2 did in the church. And I can just imagine Peter and the witnesses going, holy cow, what just happened here? And I, I don't know how fast they were doing like cognitive math, so what in their head, but my guess is it happened pretty fast. If, if, the Holy, if they believe too, if the Holy Spirit comes on them too, this lesson, this lesson that Peter is now in the progress of learning that God accepts all people, that there's no division between types and kinds, he learned it right then. And they baptized all of these believers, these new believers, these Gentile believers as co-heirs of God's grace. Wonderful, wonderful story, right? Wonderful story. There are some so what's, however. <laughs> and I, I, I want to be careful as I say them, but I really believe that God wants us to talk about this stuff. I don't believe there could be any more strategic strike from God to our world than a passage like chapter 10. Because our world is broken, and specifically broken in its division, its racism, its separatism, its hatred. Like, you can't, I'm not a big news watcher, and there's lots of reasons, but this is one of them, because there isn't ever any good news. And what you typically see is the harm that people who hate each other perpetrate. And it seems like it happens in radical ways. So let me just ask you a question. Do you believe God is sovereign over what we preach and what passage we're in at any particular time? Good. Then you believe that God has this message for you. Just like he had these visions for Peter, perfect timing, he has this for us. And I call it God's perfect timing. Here's what happened to Peter. Let me just back up and remind you how unbelievable it is. Remember, Hebrew mindset, those people. Watch what he learned. Pick it up in verse 26. Cornelius, remember when he gets to Cornelius' house? Somewhere, the distance between where Peter was in Joppa and how he got to Caesarea, that perplexed thought of what do these visions mean had clearly come to sense in his mind. He knows what they mean by the time he gets to Cornelius. And this is what, he ha what happens. Cornelius meets him, falls down at his feet, and starts to worship him. Peter, it says, says to him, stand up, I too am a man. Paraphrase modern English, you and me are the same. That would have never come out of a Hebrew mouth, ever. You're just like me. We're the same. It goes on, verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The word common in the language means trash or polluted. The way that a, that a Hebrew person described a Gentile was their trash. And what Peter says here now in his converted mindset of this gospel is that no one is trash. We're the same. 
And he goes on, verse 34. And so Peter opened his mouth when he begins to tell the story, preach the good news. And he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. In other words, and I'm going to say it this way on purpose, God favors everyone. I mean, God's grace, his benevolence, his kindness is opened up for everyone, even people who are shaking their fists at God. His sun shines on their shoulders, the crops grow for them, and the rain falls on them just like it does you. There's a benevolence kind of grace that happens to all men. God is not resisting those things. Now, clearly there's a division between those who come to saving faith and eternal life to those who reject it. But the reality of it is God shows no favoritism. There aren't those people in God's economy. Make sense? So what does all this mean? I'm gonna confess to you that I struggled writing (laughs) that. I mean, I, I have it in my own mind, but language is hard because we all interpret it our own way. So I need you to listen to what I'm saying. Um, There was a phrase that I wrote, our God isn't, and fill in the blank, therefore we aren't either. So it's kind of be like him thing. But the word our God isn't, right after that, I didn't know what to put in there. Like our God doesn't discriminate, but someone would say, well, he picked Israel over everybody else. I suppose you could have an army argument there. Or our God isn't prejudice, but prejudice simply means that, that um, opinion made without adequate info. Our God doesn't struggle with that. God knows us before we perform, so he can prejudge me anytime he wants to and be right. That work doesn't work. You know the word that works best in our language, if you use the dictionary, is Racist. And the reason why I struggle to say that isn't because it isn't an accurate portrayal of this issue. It's because that word is like a flamethrower in our culture. The word racist simply means that we believe some races are superior to others. It is the same verbiage as those people. Get it? And so if I'm trying to be as clear and faithful to this This particular experience for Peter and what God is telling him and then the church, I would say it this way, our God isn't racist and he he commands us not to be. It's that simple. It's that simple. The good news that Peter preaches here, the good news that a lot of you would shake your head, raise your hand, walk an aisle to admit is the good news for all people. Not just church people and not just good people and not people of a certain ethnicity, not a certain color, not a certain place or a tribe. The good news is for sinners who come in repentance and faith to Jesus alone. That's what the good news is for. God does not show favoritism in that way. And by the way, let me just shape our narrative, right? Because some of us are going, great, great, let's take the good news to everybody. That's awesome. And, And it sometimes can feel like this. Let's drop the good news and let's leave the people. I want you to know something. In the depiction of what it is to be his witnesses, it means we go in this, in this environment, in this envelope of love. We can't tell people about Jesus without loving them and including them in our community. You can't do it. The Bible doesn't know anything about just dropping our load and leaving, nothing. It says go get in and serve and love. How do you love? Like Jesus loved. Who do you love? Neighbors, enemies. You can't get away from it. We are called to jump in this thing and extend the witness through the mechanism of love. And and you know this, love isn't just a place you go to eat. It's your life. 
That's what we're supposed to do. So let me ask you a question. Do you see everyone, everyone around you as a potential heir of God's grace? Do you see everyone around you as a neighbor to love? And I don't know about you, so I, I can say this and let it, the Holy Spirit do his job, but I mean everyone. The people that scare you and boil your blood. The people you don't understand. As a Christian saved by God's amazing grace, it includes them. Can you see all people through the eyes of Jesus? The, the person with a different ethnic background the person raised on some religion that you think is just totally whack? Can you see them through the eyes of Jesus, to the, to the person who has that reputation, you know, the scarred up reputation, the one that everyone looks at when they walk in? Can you see them through the eyes of Jesus? Can you see the, the person who's too young to even understand what we're talking about through the eyes of Jesus or someone who's too old to ever want to change, who's stuck in their ways? Can you see them through the eyes of Jesus or the person who is politically bent to a way that just totally inflames your anger? Can you see them through the eyes of Jesus? Because that's the point of the passage. I don't know what else to tell you, but it confronts all of us in nuanced ways. I, I told Tyler before uh, this morning got started, I go, I, I, maybe I'm naive, but I wouldn't say the bulk of our people struggle with racism. Like picking a people to hate. But I do think we might struggle with ignorance and not knowing how to love. I'm just not saying there aren't racists here, and clearly that's right down the pipe for this, this application. The message of Acts 10 is that God's arms are open wide to anyone who would receive Jesus, and all are family. Amen? I'm not saying everyone is saved. I'm saying that everyone who comes to Jesus is saved. It's available to all who would have it. Let me give you a couple other so what's as our time is running out. Here's, here's the second one. Clearly, this is obvious. Everyone, everyone, and I mean everyone who is saved, is saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. There is no other option. In other words, to the one who is beyond, in their mind, beyond God's grace, you know, I'm from this place, I've done those things, I am this person, there's no way God's grace can catch up with me. God's grace is available to you. And to the person who thinks because of your life and your background and your deeds that somehow God's grace isn't needed for your life, here's what we say about this. The grace of God is for all of us. We are all sinners in need, amen? That's the clear implications of this. P Peter obviously grew up believing that a person could be made right with God or new with God if he became a Jew, be converted into Judaism. Well, you know what that meant. A bunch of law and circumcision. Do things, Change things. That's how you can have it. This, this passage, among many others, and the whole theme of the scripture is God's benevolence comes to us in the person of Jesus that you receive by faith, period. To add to the gospel of Jesus alone by faith alone is to make it a different gospel. And it doesn't, it's not good news at that point. Do you understand? It's more labor. It's just another religion. And I'm not suggesting, so listen very carefully, that once God changes you through grace alone, that your life doesn't become different. Because he doesn't leave us alone once he saves us. He transforms us. That's a promise. That's a promise of the scriptures. But to be fair, we come to Christ 
without any requirement of work. We come admitting our need and trusting in Jesus. Anybody say amen to that? It's easy though, and I have to say this, for us to add to the gospel of grace, isn't it? And, and here's what I mean by that. It's not like you consciously decide there's more than Jesus alone because you all are answering it correctly. I see you nodding your head. We do it unconsciously. Yeah, Jesus alone, but you should probably dress different than that. <laughs> Jesus alone, but you probably shouldn't go to that place. Jesus alone, but you better hold on to these particular theological nuances because Jesus alone and that matters. Get my point? Like almost unconsciously, and I think sincerely, we kind of just run into what we think and what we believe and what we've experienced and say, that is also part of the gospel. It's Jesus alone. And by the way, the majority of the world today believe that they're saved if talked about Jesus and. Because they look at this pursuit of Christ as another version of religion that equals work. And how do they learn that? Not from this book. They learn it from us. Like something we say without thinking. We get uncomfortable if we tell them it's just God's grace alone. God's grace alone. Somehow we're trying to guard the kingdom of somebody who doesn't behave like they should getting in. That ain't gonna happen. God reforms those he redeems. He transforms our lives after he gives us life. Do you make sense of that? You don't have to worry. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're like Cornelius. You, you would be very similar. Man, I, I want to know this God. I've been kind of chasing whatever this is for a long time. I'm very interested. My heart is, is, is really soft and I'm really sensitive to this. I'm, trying to, I'm coming to church to try to figure him out. Don't, don't for one second think that he's hard to find. He's not hiding on you. He's here. He's here in the simplicity of this good news. That you come... You come and admit you need him. That's called confession. God, I'm a sinner. I have screwed up this and this and this. I do this all the time. I can't win. I know you care. I know it matters. I know there's, there's gonna be consequence for my life. I admit I have a need. And then just leave it and trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Believe in him. That's what the text tells us very clearly here. Believe and you'll receive forgiveness of your sins. It can't get more simple than that. And you can know him today. One last truth I, I want to leave you with. That God is tenacious about our transformation. I'm not kidding. Like you might, I don't know how old you are in Christ, but if you're here and you're 70 and you've been saved since you were one, he's not finished. He's tenacious about changing us. If you even just look at Peter's life, this is how I see him. Think what the text says. Peter was saved. Yes, he was, just so you know. Peter was saved by the grace of God. Peter was empowered, yes, because as soon, as soon as Pentecost happened, Peter comes out and preaches one of the best sermons I've ever heard. Okay, he's empowered. He's clearly gifted, and he's sincere as sunshine. But he was a racist. those people. That's a problem. 
the church had grown so much in six years, Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth, and they didn't. And maybe they didn't for a couple of reasons. Maybe, maybe they're like me. We're comfortable to stay here. I know the language, I know the people, I know the restaurants. I'd rather just stay right here. Or maybe what was also included in their issue of comfort was the perspective that we have to go to them. And we don't like them. Those people are beneath us. Goyim. So what does God do for Peter? What does he do for the church? What does he do for us? He gives Peter a lesson in triplicate and then pours out the Holy Spirit on, these, on those people. Undeniable. Undeniable. And Peter's heart begins to change. And by, and by the way, I mean, God's not done with this issue in Peter's life because in Galatians 2, Peter kind of separates from these Gentile people won't eat with them. And Paul's the one who shows up and says, hey, dude, that's not how this goes, Remember? God is faithful. He's tenacious about developing our hearts. So let me just ask you a question as, as we wrap up. Do you need to grow in this area? Maybe it has nothing to do with nationalities or colors. Maybe it's types. Is, is there some group, person, type of person that you're going, not them? No. I won't love them. They won't be in my community. I will not do this with them. Is there some group of people like that? Do you look down on anyone else? Or maybe I should say it in the positive. Do you see everyone, and I mean everyone, everyone as a neighbor to love? If, if not, then, then this is God's word to you. Repent. I don't know how this is supposed to land on your heart. I know that uh, the church is not innocent in our culture of division. In the wars and the separatism, we're not loving really well at the level that Jesus loved. So can we just be honest? Can we just do what the scriptures say to do about all of our sin? Call it what it is. Leave it with him. And let's love like Jesus. Let's pray. God, I, I pray for my heart, for the hearts of these people. We want to be like Jesus. We trust in the good news, the gospel. We have seen his spirit work on our lives. We have a, an experience like Peter in knowing Christ is real and lives. But we might share something else with Peter. We might look down our nose at somebody. God, confront us with that sin God, let your kindness lead us to repentance. Let us love like Jesus, we pray. Amen.